All right. Well, listen, uh, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be. Super good to hear two different updates on money this week. Um, The playground, just so you know, is um, the heart behind that is this. Not so that our kids here at this church can necessarily have the best playground equipment. We let the city do that. We let the city provide really expensive playground equipment that we normally, in normal days, go and use. Um, But one day we'll be back here and we'll be welcoming new families and just the importance of keeping up with safety, the importance of um, keeping up with things. We're really looking forward to some some updates. The update that you didn't hear, here's the secret sauce behind how the sausage is made. New toilets. See, that's the kind of thing you won't get in uh, in normal churches. But we're going to tell you that. There's upgraded things happening here for the benefit of us gathering to worship. Listen, we are equal opportunity worshipers. That means this, that if you love to live chat and love to log on, reveal yourself, enter the conversation that way, go for it. That's awesome. I hear from so many people that are like, Dave, I never log in. I don't have a user account. I don't ever chat. Is that okay? Thumbs up. Good to have you. In fact, I'm going to welcome you from Nevada right now. I know we have some people out of state who are watching. Um, You've been texting me, so welcome. Good to have you worshiping. I also want to keep in mind um, user 777 from last week. Thank you so much for letting yourself be known. Uh, For those of you who may not know, you have landed on a church that is located here in San Jose, California. We're a non-denominational church. It's called Neighborhood Bible Church. And what that means is this, that the Bible is our authority, Jesus is our Savior, and we're excited to come and gather and worship. We were planted 13 years ago from a church in Cupertino called Valley Church. And uh, have been going strong ever since. Um, the also the other big thing about it, uh, our church, uh, just to take note of, is that we are a bilingual church in that we have a Spanish service that happens every single week uh, via a different live stream. Periodically, we get together um, as one giant family and we do a bilingual service together. Uh, it's been one of the incredible works of God that has gone on. Let me just say that our norm, too, if you're new with us, um, is that we tend to go through books of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now. And we go through books of the Bible because it provides context and allows, it doesn't just allow for pastors or leadership to sort of pick their pet issues and keep preaching on those kinds of things. The other thing that we've seen, especially with COVID-19, worldwide pandemic, citywide unrest, is we, we get to see God show off just how relevant the Bible is. Um, rather than just leadership pointing the spotlight uh, to topics and issues that we think the Bible speaks to and we think are important, God has the opportunity as we work our way through the whole of Scripture um, just to draw things out. We're going to see this again this morning in Luke chapter 19. Um, What we see in our headlines are corrupt institutions, uh, questioning the establishment, um, oppressive policies, legitimate and illegitimate use of power and force. That's on the national conversation right now, Um, and on and on it goes. And this morning, those very topics are going to be on display in Luke chapter 19. Well, some of you may remember um, the Live Strong yellow bracelets that went around, um, let me tell you, there was, there was a bracelet phenomenon that predated the Livestrong bracelets. Some of you might remember WWJD, the WWJD bracelet. And what that stood for was, what would Jesus do, right? And so people wore these bracelets around. When you think about things like inequality, 
when you think about things like racism and the hurt that's going on there, when you think about things like violence being exerted um, and corruption in different kinds of institutions, um, what's happening is this. These things have always been, but they're really evident right now, and people are wanting to talk about them. People are wanting to talk about policies None of us have probably ever in our lifetime watched a governor of our state or city officials more on the news, more on news clips, more on little snippets than we have in this season. So the, the right of government to rule and policies being handed down and how we sift through all of this is right in front of our face. What would Jesus do? So we see a lot of the same things, but what should we do about it? How do we respond to it? More specifically, if you're a believer, how should a follower of Jesus Christ respond to these things? I hope you've been wrestling with those questions yourself. You know, what would Jesus do is interesting. It's, it's actually a movement that was born out of a pastor who asked that question of his congregation with the idea of, Let's live in radical, obe- in radical obedience. Let's ask ourselves in front of every decision, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? And then just do what Jesus would do. Curiously, what happens is this. There are these people called Jesus marketers. And Jesus marketers um, may be doing something legitimate or maybe doing something illegitimate. Jesus marketers got a hold of a good thing which is asking this question so that we might live in radical obedience, and it became a profit thing. And as the sales of WWJD bracelets grew and grew and grew, what happened is WWJD started to turn out on all kinds of different things, uh, all kinds of different products that were flying off of the shelf. WWJD, at its worst, is marketing a shirt, a bracelet, a book, or a lunchbox, and somehow the person buying it thinks they're good, thinks they're on the Jesus team because they've got their WWJD t-shirt going on. At its worst, a little slogan like that can be turned into something evil. Um, Also at its worst is to take something that could be really good, asking a penetrating question, what would Jesus do with this dollar? What would Jesus do with this hour? God, what would you do? What would Jesus do with the breath in, in, in my lungs? And turning it into a prophet. Seeing something that may be legitimate. Let's get this message out. Let's get this little reminder on people's wrist. And turning it into something that becomes greed. WWJD, which is a great question to consider, by the way, might have become the very kind of thing that Jesus rails against. In Luke chapter 19. To get at the question, what would Jesus do? Let me me give you another question, and that is this. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Part of why we look back on Luke is this. When we think something's important, we write it down. God saw the account of the life of his son Jesus Christ is so important that through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had it written down. We have the gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke records the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And we look to the life of Jesus Christ to say, what did Jesus do? Not just for historical curiosity, but we look to him so that we can learn and emulate the only perfect person who ever lived. 
And as we do the work of looking back on what did Jesus do, it actually gives us insight into what would Jesus do, which leads to what should I be doing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Today, here's the snippet of scripture we're going to take on. Jesus enters the temple, which by the way, is a legitimate institution instituted by God gone wrong. The temple in Jerusalem is a legitimate institution that's become corrupt. And what does Jesus do? He exerts his authority by driving out the, the, the corruption, and he uses forceful words and forceful actions as a demonstration in anger. Wow. Again, I hope you see from this, I hope you take away the overwhelming picture of how Luke 19 overlays on 2020 in some powerful, powerful ways. Here's what I want you to do. Right where you are, even if it feels totally awkward, if you lived through the year 1968, and by the way, we have a few live studio audience people, aka the band and media team, um, but if you lived through the year 1968, and it's not just like you were born and you were a baby, but you remember the year 1968, here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your hand right now, okay? Raise your hand if you, if you lived through that, okay? Look around, and you can put one down. You can put your hand down, uh, or hands down of, of, of where you are. Um, those of you who aren't raising your hands... What I want you to do is I want you to look at those who raised their hand, who remember the year 1968, and I want you to ask them um, what it was like about the unrest going on in that year, um, what it was like, and sort of the, the general assessment from their worldview of the establishment, capital E, the establishment. Okay? Here's a follow-up question. I want you to ask them personally how they felt about the man, capital T, capital M. And then a follow-up follow-up question is I want you to have them define who the man is or was, okay? That's your homework. If you aren't in the same room as someone who raised their hand and didn't raise their hand, you might need to get on FaceTime or texting to make that happen. The year 2020 is unlike any year I've ever lived through. Um, and yet... The actions, the reactions, the scenes on our TV screen, because I'm a history buff and I love to watch the past, are so incredibly similar to decades from the past. And here's what dawned on me this week is this, that the rotten fruit of a fallen world are never new. The rotten fruit of a fallen world are never new. That means 2020 is a year like I've never seen before. But if the Lord waits and the, and the, and the world continues, there will be rotten fruit in the year 2052, right? That may, historians may look back on and go, wow, this is just like 2020. So the rotten fruit of a fallen world is not new. Here's what I know from 1968 video and from 2020 living it, and every year in between is this, that the establishment... And the man, and whoever else you want to title it, is always under scrutiny and always under attack from every generation. There's always this questioning of authority. A certain level of this, certain ways of carrying this out are biblical, are wise. We said this in our church series from January, that God has a perfect design for the church. And then watch this. This is a pastor of a local church, including himself and his church. Ready? And we will always get it wrong in the execution. Perfect design, flawed execution. 
we will always get it wrong. Why? Because we are under shepherds to the chief shepherd. There's one perfect one who ever lived, and the ones leading the church will get it wrong. That means God needs to discipline us. That means we need to be on our knees. That means we need to keep coming back to the perfect design of the institution. And sometimes the way God brings that up is a new generation coming up and saying, why are we doing it that way? I want answers for this. What's happening here? And if there can be enough humility on either side, the institution can, can rid itself, can be cleansed of corruption. So the establishment being under scrutiny is nothing new. Um, secondly, we know this. It's always easier to attack, to question, to mock, or to rebel against authority and the establishment and the man rather than to lead well, rather than to reestablish after corruption, right? Rather than to have the answers that you question. Just ask those who were college students in 1968. They were handed the country. And so here we are in 2020, right? And we can look back and see the track record of how much harder it is to be the establishment, to set the policies, than to question, rebel, mock, and, re- uh, and reject the establishment. Here's what's happening in Luke 19, a little preview. Jesus is this upstart rabbi. He's new on the scene. He rides into the very center of religion and power, the capital city, and he calls out the establishment. And he doesn't do this quietly. He doesn't do this politely, but he does it boldly and publicly. Now remember, in a shame-honor culture, to have an upstart, who is this guy think he is, show up and call out those in power in a public way is to be robbed of your good name and reputation. In a shame-honor culture, that's everything. That's why our passage says they were seeking to destroy him. What's more is he then sets up shop and holds court for the next five days. In that place, he just... He just uh, drove things out. So our title this morning is this, found out, driven out, cleaned out. It's the work of Jesus in what your Bibles might term as cleansing the temple. Now the setting for for this occurrence is everything to, to understanding it. Remember last week, um, we, we had fireworks on our mind, right? Not just because of the 4th of July and fireworks that I heard last night at 2.37 a.m., um, but fireworks over Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means there were celebrations. The, the Messiah's come. Jesus rides into town. There's huge celebrations. And right in the midst of that, we see Jesus weeping over the city. We see Jesus prophesying fireworks of a different kind, as in judgment because rejection and rebellion are on this city. The setting of what's going on with the cleansing of the temple is layered, and it's rich in significance and rich in drama. Take Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the capital city. Throughout Scripture, we know Jerusalem as the city of God and the city that kills the prophets. It's the holy city that's in unholy disarray. So he's writing into Jerusalem. But more specifically within Jerusalem, it's, it's the temple. Well, what is the temple? The temple is the very center of religious life for Jewish people. It's the physical representation of God's presence on earth. And it is the seat of religious authority. So we have Jerusalem. We have the temple. What time of year is it? It's during Passover. 
What's Passover? Passover is the season that yearly celebrates the deliverance of God's people by God Himself. It's the holy season of not only solemnity, but celebration. So this is the trifecta of holy. Holy city, Jerusalem. Holy place, the temple. And holy ceremony, the Passover. It's now Monday in Luke 19. It's Monday of what, we, what would come to be known as Holy Week. Five days until Jesus is going to be executed on a Roman cross, not far from where this temple scene is happening. We're going to start in verse 45. We're going to read just through 48, just a handful of verses this morning. And here's what I want you to catch. From last week, fireworks over Jerusalem, we have the sobbing Savior and his triumphal entry, and in a matter of hours, he turns into shoot him up sheriff, okay? Sobbing Savior, shoot him up sheriff. Here's what I mean. Um, those of you who have been around this church a while know that I can't go very long uh, before relating things in Scripture to the Old West. I'm not sure why that is. I grew up in San Jose. I'm not from the Old West. I didn't time travel. I just generally like that period, I guess, and so I keep talking about it. I have shown incredible restraint, okay? After an, ent- an entire series in the book of James about the Old West, I think it's been that long since I brought it up. But here's what made me think of it. Um, my family will walk in sometimes, if I'm ever watching TV by myself, I can only get my daughter Cassie to watch old westerns with me, but they will often find me watching old westerns. Um, and, and in the old west, here's what, here's what you see going on. A lot of times they will open the movie and you'll see the corruption of the bad people in power and it'll show that they're wearing the badge, right? So they have the sheriff badge on and they're, they're, they're basically thugs with a badge, And they'll give some sense of the misery that the common people um, are living under this terrible regime. You'll see them hiding behind, um, you know, uh, what are those things called? Something. I can't even think of it. It's blanking out. This is what happens when you get older. Um, They're just shivering and hiding and cowering and, and, you know, always deferring to these thugs with a badge going on. And then you see this like little shift in the music. Um, Jamie, who puts, helps me put these things together, she says when she saw this picture, she just heard that Western music, right? You, you hear the shift in the tone, and, a, and a, a solo stranger rides in. There's a lot of silhouette shots. They took their time with movies back then, so you see him riding through fields. You see him riding up a hill. You see him riding through the dust. You see him riding down the hill. After a while, you're like, okay, we get it. He comes riding into town. He comes riding in in broad daylight, super calm, super in control, totally alone. And what does he do? He takes out the bad guys with his six shooters, and all the old western gags go on. You've got people, you know, like this, falling from the ceiling, you know, from the rooftops, from behind the thing. The guy holding the glass of beer, where the bullet goes through, and you see the beer spill out, and then a few seconds later, he slumps over. Just all the old gags that you have, all of that going on, and it is announcing this message: There's a new sheriff in town, right? And he sets up authority. And sometimes what they'll do is in the very beginning of the movie, set that up, and then you see the response of what these guys are going to do. Are they going to turn tail and run? That makes for a short, terrible movie. So what happens is they form a plot to come back at this guy. When I read this passage and I think about those scenes, and in our hearts we're cheering because those were bad guys with authority. We're cheering for this solo writer, this mysterious person. There's always some mystery to him. 
And this is sort of what I see as I read this passage. So you read the Bible, Luke 19. You can look down. There's nothing interesting to look at on your TV. It's just me reading and looking down, okay? So Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45, says this. Remember, Jesus doesn't ride in on a frisky, fire-breathing stallion. He rides in on a lowly donkey. (laughs) Okay, so that's the picture. I've never seen that in a Western. A lowly donkey just kind of slowly cruising into town. And now this. And he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So what's going on here? What are we to glean from this? The Prince of Peace is going ballistic on these people who were selling. Why? Found out, driven out, cleaned out. Here we go. Found out. Number one that I want you to see is this. That sin and corruption will eventually be revealed. Sin and corruption will eventually be revealed. This is true of individuals, but it's also true of corporations, institutions, government policies. Numbers 32.23 says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. And in 1 Timothy 5, it says these words. It says, um, Remember the sins of some people are obvious, leading them into certain judgment, but there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. There's a sense of some sin is so public it goes before you, it enters the room before you do. And there's other sin that the nature of what it is, is you go into the room, interact with people, and it follows behind you. It's discovered later. By the way, spiritual principle, the same is true with good. There is some good that you will do that precedes you. It's obvious, it's external, it's out there. There is other good that you do that will not be revealed, perhaps even until after you die. So this is a spiritual principle that is just there. Sin and corruption will eventually be revealed. Light is going to shine on darkness. That's the promise of Scripture. We see that in the testimony of our own experience and history. Here's number two. Is that sinful people have always and will always make religion big business. Sinful people will always make religion big business, period. People use gods for gain. People use gods, little g gods, for gain. Profaning the sacred is not new, and it is never excusable. So this is something as certain as death and taxes and the sunrise tomorrow. Wicked people will always use religion for big business. Jesus' road trip has been one of shining light on the lives of different segments of people about life here and now and explaining the kingdom of heaven. And he keeps overlaying them, showing them um, things like mustard seeds and things like manure and things like ruling of of rulers over people um, to teach them about the ways of God. Jesus is a truth teller and he is a light shiner. He shines the light wherever he goes. Now on his arrival in Jerusalem, and specifically to the temple, he exposes the wicked reversal of the temple grounds themselves. 
meaning this, that the house made to pray has instead become a house of pray, right? The house made to pray has become the house of pray. And who are the predators? The predators are the very ones who should be protecting and serving those coming to worship. The, the ones who are preying on the innocent are those who are the ones who should be setting the table for prayer service and worship. The victims were the poor who came for items of worship. Here's a principle that's really convicting, really powerful. It's this. Your actions will eventually reveal your God. What you do eventually tells who you worship. In other words, your theology spills out of you whether you try to contain it or not. So what got Jesus so heated? The leaders and teachers were worshiping money instead of God. And here's what's worse. They were using God's name and God's house to cover their sins. The very people who should be protecting and serving the sheep were instead devouring the sheep. Sadly, this has been the history of God's people from Old Testament times. So Jesus finds them out and calls them out publicly. Naked profiteering, abuse of power. It's a monopoly situation. There was a legitimate need that probably for a time used to be met. That is that poor travelers were coming from around the countryside. They were ascending the hill to Jerusalem so they could worship at the temple for Passover. All legitimate, right? And what they would need when they got there were coins for worship and a sacrifice for worship, animals for worship. So instead of bringing their animal with them, they could purchase one there as an act of worship for God. Instead of meeting the legitimate need, the haves, those in power, those with pigeons, those with oxen, those with goats and sheep, the haves took advantage of the have-nots. They took advantage not just of their position, but of the circumstances. Think about when there's outrage at corruption, whether in government or in a church or in a school or in the police or any position of authority. There's outrage when it comes to light that people in power use their position for personal advantage. Okay? That's enough to just get people angry. That's not right. That's not why we voted them into power. That's not what I'm trusting this person to do as a camp leader, as a pastor, as, as a parent. But there's new levels of outrage when this profiting from your position is done during a crisis. So think about natural disasters or horrific crimes or some other horrible circumstance and you see people using chaos to climb the corporate ladder or to do a power grab. That enrages us at new levels. It's one thing to do this just sort of as a corruption, but now instead of in this very obvious time of crisis and need when you should be leveraging all of your attention to help that poor person who had this poor thing go on, that poor community. Instead, it's sort of this power grab. And we see that there's something in us that says unjust, wrong, stop it. Jesus says no way. And he shines the light on this. 
We have the term whistleblower. Instead of a whistleblower, Jesus becomes a whip maker. So driven out. That's found out. Here's driven out. Note that all four Gospels include this account of Jesus cleansing the temple, is how your Bible may call it. And there are different little layers that are added on, but one of the layers that Luke doesn't include that the others do is this, that Jesus makes a whip and he turns over the table of the money changers and he knocks over the chairs of those selling different kinds of livestock. So I want to look, as Jesus drives out, I want to look at his actions and I want to look at his words. You know, sometimes Jesus is explaining things and he's kind of confusing, right? His very best friends on earth, the disciples, will sometimes hear him teach a message and they'll get him alone. They'll hear him, okay, now what did you mean by all that? And then he would sometimes explain it and we as a reader get let in on this. Here's what we see with this. There's no secret to how Jesus felt about what was going on in the temple, right? He doesn't stop and tell some obscure story. He doesn't stop and try to, you know, give metaphors and parables like he most often does. Sometimes righteous indignation calls for immediate righteous anger. Let me say that again. Sometimes righteous indignation calls for immediate righteous anger. Anger is one of these powerful emotions that God created for good, right? The scriptures say, don't go to bed angry and give the devil a foothold. Don't give the enemy a foothold with your anger. It doesn't say, don't get angry. Angry is an incredibly powerful motivator. The biggest couch potato amongst us who wouldn't care about justice for anything if they saw an old lady getting mugged across the street from their bay window while watching their show, while eating their ice cream, would probably be driven by anger to get up off the chair and do something. If they're more timid, they might just hide behind the curtains, call 911. If they're more bold, they don't even know what they would do. They would start marching towards the person to help. Anger is a powerful, powerful motivator to action. The problem is probably most of us have seen unholy pictures of anger, not holy pictures of anger. So I want you to imagine the scene. Uh, There would have been a very large courtyard outside of the increasing uh, sort of closed off parts of the temple of worship. And this giant outdoor area was perfect for setting up shop to meet a legitimate need of people traveling from all over the rural parts of Israel and, and beyond. Um, to, to, to do some exchanges, mutually beneficial things. But it also became the perfect spot to set up a, an, an illegitimate operation. So this would have been sort of like a giant out, outdoor religious bazaar or mall. Um, I've traveled to Asia, to Africa, and South America. And aside from driving, and of course food and language, one of the things you notice very, very quickly about those three places is shopping is quite different in these locations. I imagine that what's going on here would have sounded very foreign to my Western ears. The smells going on would be very different than Valley Fair Mall. Um, and just sight, smell, uh, just the whole ambiance would be completely different than how we think of it. So, so this is what's probably going on. Um, it's this courtyard, this setting is a super easy place to rip off non-city folk, right? Rural people coming, and they have a need to get a pigeon and offer that in sacrifice. 
There's a monopoly in town. In other words, this is it. These are the stalls that, that you do it in. And so over time, this became corrupt. So whether in the exchange of currency or in the exchange of goods, there was money being profited off of worship. Suddenly, there's just an explosion, right? There's livestock, there's money, and there's furniture flying everywhere. There is the thundering voice of Jesus. There had to have been the thundering voice of protest. Who do you think you are? What's going on? And this whole big scene sort of explodes right in the temple courtyard. Utter confusion. Jesus puts a stop to the injustice. He's giving us a demonstration He drives the people out with their livestock. This is like a public coup going on. He's he's coming in and kicking out the old authority system. And then what's more is he sits in their place teaching the ways of God. So drives them out and then sits down and teaches over the next five days. So those are his actions. His words give description to his anger. Lest we think Jesus just didn't have enough coffee, was having a bad day, was kind of ticked that he was about to die for the sins of other people, he gives words to describe what's going on. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So he's quoting the Bible. This one little sentence is a compilation of two Old Testament passages. Let's take the first one. My house shall be a house of prayer. This is from Isaiah 56. If you have time this week, or just make time, go read Isaiah 56 in its entirety. The context of what he's lifting this out of is utterly incredible. It's a call to walk in obedience. It's the assurance that those who have joined themselves to the Lord will be given a place and a name that will not be taken away. And specifically, it calls out outsiders. Outsiders, you get in. Eunuchs, foreigners, you have an inheritance in the Lord when you join yourself to the Lord that is untouchable. It's just this incredible celebration, deliverance, passage. It's open to all. There's hopeful healing, salvation, deliverance for everyone. Here's a snippet of it. Isaiah 56 verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love him, to to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. Listen to this. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. What a promise. What a good news for this Gentile. What a vision for us, Neighborhood Bible Church. God is forming a new family from all the peoples of the earth. His house will have children from all places with various tones and tongues. Different backgrounds, different experiences, different preferences. And guess what? They'll all be His. They will join together. They'll have a shared name. They'll have a shared seat at God's family table to feast and enjoy the good life. Not the good life like we can imagine it here. The eternal good life. This is what God's doing. Uh, Sometime around the year 2004, I think it was, I was at Urbana, which is a 
biannual or every other year uh, missions conference. And we rang in the new year with a worship service I'll never forget. Uh, We were in St. Louis and we had filled that stadium uh, with people from, from all over the world. And on stage were probably 20 plus worship leaders from all these different languages. And I had a group of Koreans, two rows worth of Koreans that were all sitting right in front of me. And as we're singing a song, they would immediately go into a Korean rendition where, where they're singing in their mother tongue and they're weeping in praise to God. And I'm standing behind them not knowing a word of Korean, moved to tears. And then we got to join in, in English and then it moved over to an African language and it went around the room. And I thought, what a little foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. What a powerful picture of what God is accomplishing in our midst. What a powerful thing to join with and pursue as a Christian today. But that's not what we see happening on this day. The foreigners are easy prey. Rural Jews would have been easy pickings for prophets. And so this second piece, this second quote of an Old Testament prophet, you've made it a house a den of robbers. This is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Again, if you take time to read the whole chapter, it's incredible. Essentially, Jeremiah seven eleven is a word of warning, calling out the hypocrisy of those who would do all kinds of wickedness. And in case we don't know what that is, it lists some of the wickedness. Taking all kinds of advantage of others, but then entering God's temple and singing and celebrating and calling out the deliverance that God has for us. And God says, nonsense, stop it. I see you. You're found out and I'm calling you out. That hypocrisy doesn't please me. You're not fooling anyone. Do you want to know what the rest of of chapter 7 is about? Essentially, it's a message of turn or burn. Judgment awaits those who reject the true king. You aren't fooling anyone. As the cross of Jesus shows God's payment for sin, the whip of Jesus shows God's fearsome anger at sin. When we look to the cross, we celebrate it. We find comfort in it. We know that God has made the payment necessary for sin. When you see the whip of Jesus, you ought to see a demonstration of God's fierce, immediate anger at sin. That means that when sin and hypocrisy is going on and God has his staying hand and isn't acting in perfectly just, righteous indignation power, it's him showing mercy. That means the day of salvation is at hand. That means hurry up. The warning is this, there's coming a day when the floodgates will come. When the floodgates of God's wrath and judgment on sin is coming. It's not today. So friend, today if that's you, hear God's staying power as God's patience towards you so that no one would perish. Here today is a day of warning. I want to wrap up with the third part of this. It's so powerful that Jesus doesn't just clean out the corruption and then walk away. What happens is that Corruption comes and fills in the void. Jesus fills the void with himself. Found out, driven out, cleaned out. There's no dash and hide here. Jesus stays and sets up shop. He holds court in the very spot where the bullies with badges were ripping people off 
and preying on people. And what does he do? Prayer and teaching. He's teaching the people day after day after day. There's worship going on. This place, this temple, was gifted to God's people as a kind of shadow, a little forerunner to what's going to happen one day when Messiah comes. And what is that? It's intimate relationship. It's worship. Jesus restores what has been stolen, what has been lost, what has been forgotten, what has been corrupted at the temple. When he ushers back in and models what was always intended. Remember, perfect design, flawed execution. This happened in the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial temple system. It happens today in the church. There's conversation going on. What is prayer and teaching of the word of Jesus but a conversation? There's intimacy. There's relationship with God the Father. And how do the people respond to this? I love this little line in Scripture. I've missed it in the past. They drank it up. They were parched for this. It says that they hung on His every word. That's what kept the bullies with badges from immediately reacting and doing something to him. They didn't have crowd approval. They hung on his every word. What a picture. What a demonstration this is. How relevant is this? This is what Jesus does with us, by the way. What a picture of salvation this is. Jesus alone has the rightful authority to expose the corruption and the wickedness in us. It's an act of love to come and be found out by Jesus, to be called out by Jesus in our sin. And Jesus not only has the rightful authority to call it out, but he has the power to drive out the wicked bullies and the false teachers and the negative voices, the satanic voices that are keeping us bound. And he drives them out. And what does he do? He fills us with his presence. Christian, what is available to you every day? Day after day, the teaching of Jesus is available to you. It sits in your scripture. Day after day, we can sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. And not just Jesus, but the apostles writing back on his life. The prophecies of old being fulfilled in him. This is what's available to us. In doing this, Jesus declares our life as a life of prayer and worship. This is a past salvation experience for me as I sat with this. And you're going to wrestle with this with some of the discussion questions. I thought this isn't a one-time event. These are things that are ongoing for us as a church collectively and for us individually as Christians to be humble enough to say, God, what needs to be called out and found out, exposed As, man, we've gotten really used to this, but that is not normal. That is not the intended purpose. I want to close our time by just um, looking at some patterns for us to see and follow. It's so powerful now to know that we are the holy dwelling place of God. doesn't matter that you've never been to Jerusalem. doesn't matter that you can't get to the temple. As the Lamb of God, Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus ushers in a new covenant. Wasn't the veil that blocked the Holy of Holies from the common person torn from top to bottom at his death? That's our access to God. 
Think about this. In Christ, we are now the chosen race, the royal priesthood. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a priest. And our body is now the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6 says, we are not our own. We've been bought with Jesus' own blood. Therefore, we honor God with our bodies, the living temple. Here's the million-dollar question. Are you ready for it? Is there corruption to be ashamed of in your temple? Or is there intimate worship? Is your temple a house of prayer for all people? Is your temple one where you're sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving instruction from Him, and hanging on His every word? Let me be really blunt so it's not a heavy burden for you. This is not a binary question. This is a moment-by-moment question. One moment we can be in a situation where, where there are unholy, disordered array going on in our blood-bought temple. And the next moment, God can reveal that through our conscience. God can reveal that through the teaching of his word. God can reveal that through the actions of a brother or a sister or a circumstance or good or bad news. And in a moment, we can be found out. We can repent. We can have that driven out. And God can restore intimate relationship in our temple. I want you to see the outrage expressed by Jesus as a warning to you. If your God-given, God-purchased temple is housing things for personal profit and corruption, repent today. Turn and change your mind. Change your ways. With the help and power of Jesus, cooperate with His will to drive it out and fill it with Himself. That's the word of warning. And I want you to let the actions of Jesus in the temple comfort you. Jesus is there each day for prayer and teaching. Let the crowds there be instructive for you. They hung on His every word. You do the same. What an invitation this is for us, Christian. Your discussion questions this week are are laid out in such a way that there are just a host of topics. So many topics emerge from this. I want you to consider your life and look at the topics and grab the one or two or three that might be most pertinent to you. Maybe as you read the, the passage, there's something else that's there. But I want to highlight just two as I close. One is the idea of false teachers. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, teachers, leaders, you will either love God or you will love money. You can't serve both. And what we see in this passage is this, that these are individuals whose love for money and profit superseded their worship of God. They weren't doing both. They were devoted to one and despising the other, and Jesus calls it out. Friends, there are a lot of voices coming at you right now. There are a lot of teachers. There are a lot of people telling you how to think, what to think, what to feel, when to do it, how to express it, when to express it, how not to express it. Hear me. I hope you are in a period of learning and growth. I see all kinds of people posting different books that they're reading and learning and trying to grow. Great. Do it. I'm doing the same. Here's the message from your pastor. Read the Bible first and most. Read God's holy word that will stand forever. Read it first and read it most. Let it be the loudest teacher, the loudest voice in your ear. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul is coming and saying, here's why the gospel took root. We weren't false teachers. He says, for our appeal to you does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. 
not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. That's the kind of teaching Jesus modeled. Last is prayer. I just want to read for you. I'm going to close by reading a prayer. Periodically in my devotional life over the last 15 or so years, I've read prayers from people unlike myself. Primarily, they're unlike myself because they're dead, like they lived a long time ago. But they're also unlike myself because they might be from a little bit different traditions, different parts of the world. And currently, I'm in a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of mostly old Puritan-type prayers. And I want to close by reading one. You know, normally, normal everyday life around our home is, and and this is part of growing up, is you learn to feed yourself, right? You have an imagination for what you want to eat. You purchase items, you create a meal, you eat the meal, then you have to clean up after the meal. That's sort of the normal rhythm of things. But isn't it nice once in a while to go and out to eat and let someone else think up the menu and, and, and let someone else prepare it and buy all the ingredients and all your job is sit and eat it and then you actually get up and walk away and someone else cleans it up. That's a really nice experience. It's a good little metaphor for prayer, where most of prayer is learning to pray yourself and with your community, but periodically it's good to just have a prayer done for you, and you just, you just soak in it. That's what a closing prayer, an opening prayer might be in a church service. It's certainly what reading a pre-written prayer is all about. Let me read this, and then just after this, you're going to hear from one of our community group leaders in this ongoing series about what Christian community is. So would you pray for me? This is about the Trinity. Heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore Thee as being one, one essence, one being, one God in three distinct persons, for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and to Thy kingdom. O Father, Thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, Thou hast loved me and assumed my nature Shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. O Father, I thank Thee in fullness of grace. Thou hast given to me Jesus to be His sheep, jewel, portion. O Jesus, I thank Thee for in fullness of grace that Thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation, implanted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need, to supply my words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. O triune God, commandeth the universe, Thou hast commanded, commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray 
as one baptized into the threefold name. Amen.